This Choircast podcast is brought to you by The Wages of Grace, a novel by Brandon Dragon. What is the worst thing a person could do to you that you could still forgive? The Wages of Grace is the story of two immigrant brothers, Thierry and Marty Larocque, driven apart by a shocking event in their past that still haunts them into their old age. Thierry and Hope were the fairy tale couple, but while he was away fighting in the Second World War, Hope died in the most suspect of circumstances, and the last person to see her alive was Thierry's older brother, Marty. For decades, Thierry has wrestled with the thought that his older brother is responsible for the loss of his one true love, and now the brothers find their fates intertwined once more. This novel begs the question, is there any chasm that forgiveness cannot cross, and is there any wound that grace cannot heal? The Wages of Grace is available on Amazon, Audible, and everywhere books are sold. Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God. This is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right, all right, all right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. My name is Nat. I am joined, as always, by my um, much less good-looking older brother, John, up in the upper right-hand square of the Hollywood squares here. So say... The Giants suck, John. I finally found something you won't say. <laughs> Holy shit. Come on, man. They're really pissing me off. They were, how do they not sweep the know. A's I don't when know, the A's are like the worst league in baseball? How does this, I'll say this. How does this happen? I still like the, a, uh, the Giants. <laughs> I almost said it. Oh, I got you. I'm clipping that one. John says, I still like the A's. I still like the Giants. I still like the Giants. I know you do, but they're breaking my heart right now. Yeah, I mean, every time they like, they creep up on that, you know, they're like a couple games back to LA and I hate LA. Yeah, but there's, there's a, there's photographic evidence of you in a Rangers jersey. So I don't know. I don't know where. Listen, I'm a baseball fan. Uh huh. All right. There's only two teams that I hate and whose gear Dodgers. I will never ever sport. All right. I've never worn a, Dodgers and Yankees. <laughs> F those guys. All of them. Everybody else, that's cool. I lived in Houston for a little while. I can I can dig on the Astros. They're cheaters, but who is? Come on, listen. We're going to start throwing stones at baseball teams that cheat, like stealing signs. Wow, well, come on. But no, the Rangers, the new Rangers stadium is really nice. You should check it out sometime. It's cool. Uh, it's not anywhere near. It's not as nice as Oracle Park. I'm going to Fenway next month. So, yeah. So I'm I'm, I'm slowly but surely checking off all of it. What does this have to do with what we're doing here? Nothing. Um, our two guests are sitting there going. Really? Did we come on this show to talk about baseball? Maybe. That's the short answer is maybe. But this is the podcast, by the way. If you've tuned in for any length of time, <laughs> none of this is surprising to you. <laughs> this is all what you've come to expect. This is the level, by the way, of, uh, of, of dialogue you can expect. But this is not church is the name of the podcast because if it was church, you would have left by now. And both John and I would follow you out and probably buy you a beer somewhere. We could have church someplace else, right? So, but we are awesome, man. We are, we are awesome. <laughs> John, we are awesome. Put that in the tagline. This is not church. We, we are, are awesome. awesome. We are awesomely blessed. Uh, we're super happy. We get two guests tonight for the price of one. Your checks are in the mail. Don't worry. They're uh, not cashable. Do not cash them, but you'll receive something. Uh, but we have two great guests, and their names are, I wrote them down, by the way, John, Michael Austin and Greg Box. Let me, let me read you a little bit of something about them, and then we're going to jump into a great conversation. So Michael is first. He's a distinguished philosophy professor, accomplished author, and captivating speaker. All right, we'll be the judge of that. We'll see. <laughs> the majority of his pedagogical, pedagogical, oh my God. Why do you throw these words in, John? Am I, I saying that right? Pedagogical or pedagogical? Anyway, I understand. I didn't write it. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know like where you got it. 
don't blame me for that, uh, of his pedagogical endeavors. Written works and public engagements revolve around the intricate realm of ethical inquiries concerning character and the advancement of human well-being. Holding the esteemed position of professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University, Michael's academic pursuits encompass a diverse array of subjects, including ethics, family dynamics, sports, spirituality, religion, and technology. However, these explorations consistently maintain a central focus on character development and the promotion of human flourishing. His literary accomplishments include the publication of a notable total of 12 books. And I'm happy to get one out, man, 12. While some of these works cater to scholarly audiences, the majority are tailored for individuals possessing an interest in discovering how philosophical contemplation can be effectively employed in their daily lives. Whew, all right. Greg Bach is an assistant professor of philosophy and religion and program director for the philosophy, religion studies, and Asian studies at the University of Texas at Tyler. He also serves as director for UT Tyler Center for Ethics. He is the editor of volumes three and four of The Philosophy of Forgiveness, co-editor of Righteous Indignation, Christian Philosophical and Theological Perspectives on Anger, and the co-editor of the recent book that we're going to talk about, QAnon, Chaos, and the Cross. Man, it is really, really awesome to have two uh, amazing guys like yourself, so accomplished, hang out with us. You will be asking yourself shortly why, but for the <laughs> moment, we have you here and you're a captive body, so welcome to the show, guys. How are y'all? Thanks, I'm good. Thanks for having us. I, I say this an awful lot. John and I have, we've been doing this podcast for a couple of years now. And, uh, and just sometimes the, the level of, of, of academic people that we get on, it's, it's, it's awesome. You know what I mean? Like to, to see people who are accomplished in their fields, you know, what they're, it, it's sometimes it's a little intimidating. So, um, forgive us if we, if we, if we stumble a little bit, but we're super excited to have guys like you on, uh, to talk about the, the stuff that we want to talk about. So if you wouldn't mind each of you in turn, maybe if you wouldn't mind, maybe give us a little bit more of the, I know that was kind of a, uh, meat and potatoes uh, bio, but maybe tell us a little bit something about yourselves. We can start with uh, Mike if you want to, man. Yeah, you bet. So yeah, I'm in Richmond, Kentucky. I lived here for 20, well, 19 years, you know, long enough that I have to think about it. Um, right. Yeah, my wife and I actually, we both grew up in Kansas City, so I'm just glad you didn't say you hate the Royals, but why would you hate <laughs> the Royals? I mean, except for maybe in 2015, you know, when we actually won the series. So, no, but, yeah. no, but nobody hates the Royals. I hate the Chiefs. Yeah. Don't hate the rules. They're hard to hate. But anyway, good. Yeah. Now, see, I don't care. You can say all that, whatever you want, but you can't say, I hate Chiefs. Come on, man. Well, it's just, it's, <laughs> I understand. It's just jealousy. I, yeah. I, was, look, I just want a Patrick Mahomes in my life. That's all I need, man. Yeah. When I was growing up, you had to have, like, in the 70s and 80s, you had to have another football team to root for in Kansas City because they were just all, I mean, there was no point. Like, they didn't, they never. It was terrible. So anyway, but yeah. One thing you can never think about Chiefs fans if they, is that they have not endured. What, whatever success you're experiencing. I have, now, a, I have an ongoing game. joke with one of my coworkers who is a Kansas City fan, but he, he is a, he jumped ship when Joe Montana became a Kansas City uh, Chiefs quarterback. So I was like, I think you're the epitome of every Kansas City fan. There were no fans in Kansas City until Joe Montana came. Yeah, unless you live there. Well, yeah, unless you live there. <laughs> yeah, I remember going to like, I remember being there like chipping ice off the seats in December against the Bills when they were both horrible, like in 1978. I remember a third and 56, that was scarred me. Yeah, we still went to games. <laughs> That's right. Die hard fans. It did seem like for a while though, that was where Ken, where San Francisco 49er quarterbacks went to retire. 
Yeah, which was great for Montana, and then it just kind of... That's so great for Gerbach. Y'all got, y'all got Elvis. Bono, Gerbach. Alex Smith. <laughs> yeah, it's not surprising. But yeah, so I have one wife, three kids. They're all grown and out of school with jobs. And so it's just us and the dog. Yeah. Very cool. Life in Kentucky is good. All right. Our other guest, say hello. Tell us a little something if you don't mind. Hi, I'm um, Greg Bach and uh, live in Tyler, Texas, originally from the Bay Area, California, uh, via Knoxville, Tennessee, so a volunteer fan. And I guess our claim to fame here in East Texas is Patrick Mahomes. I mean, he played high school football <laughs> just down the street. <laughs> there you go. To keep it on the Chiefs theme here, but... Where did, where did he go to school? Was wasn't Tech White wasn't House it? White House High School, I think. Okay, White House High School. Where did he go to college though? Was it Tech? Yeah, yeah, Texas Tech. What college? Not That's the Red Raiders, tech. right? Yeah. All right. Red Raiders, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. My son went to A and M, so I'm a, I'm an honorary uh, Aggie just because you know that's where my money and lots of my time went. But uh, <laughs> that's cool, man. I I like Tyler. I used to work in College Station, and uh, I would make the drive from home and drive through the Tyler area when I went to I'm, I'm like, oh, this is kind of a cool spot, man. I like it. It was a, as far as Texas goes anyway. There yeah, are, there it's are beautiful. Of, yeah, it really, I mean, once you get west of where, or east of where I live and, you know, where I live in the, in the Permian Basin, it's mostly just brown and flat and hot. And there's not much to, it's like, oh my God, there's green stuff in Texas. You just have to go east. You got to go <laughs> east of Dallas even, but. That's cool, man. Well, we're, we're glad you guys are here. Um, I'm super interested in the topic, especially when we start talking about conspiracy and QAnon, those kinds of things. So maybe we just jump off with talking about the book and, and see where that takes us. So I'll just softball up to anybody who wants to tell us a little bit about your book. Yeah, I'll jump in and Greg can fill in. Yeah, we, it's basically, it's an edited book in the sense, like for us just means, you know, that, that we got a bunch of different people to write a chapter. Um, so the idea is getting people from, so we've got people like us, so philosophers, biblical scholars, a historian, communication, professor, um, information science, some others in there too. But basically people like people that are scholars and bringing their expertise to bear on this issue. Um, and we thought that would be more useful. I couldn't write a whole book by myself because I just don't, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it would just take me, you know, on this topic. You know, I've got stuff that I've looked at for years, but it would just be, yeah. I, I think this was more helpful. So, yeah. So we we big picture of the book. It's not necessarily the kind of thing you'd give to your you know neighbor or friend at church who's like knee deep in QAnon or waist or neck deep. It's actually, I mean, maybe that could help someone, but it's more aimed at those of us who have people who are into this kind of thing. Um, and or at least flirting with it. So kind of just giving people some uh, tools to use in their relationships to understand from different perspectives what's going on with conspiracy theories. And QAnon is a major focus because that's the big one right now, but it's, it's, it's a broader thing than that too um, in terms of just general issues about belief, conspiracy theories, faith in Christ, culture, all that stuff. So. Okay, that was some good rambling, but I'm a philosophy professor, so that's what you get. Um, <laughs> we turn, when we turn the stand-up philosopher loose, that's what happens, man. Exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> that's, that's good. I, I, it, it seems to me that that sort of inter, interdisciplinary approach to this would be really interesting then, because it's one thing to take a look at something from, say, a philosophical standpoint or an ethical standpoint, 
we've had a couple different guests on now in the last few months that that are uh, writing books about communication in particular and about, let's say, maybe like digital media and the rise of social media and how that's sort of impacted the landscape. And it's interesting to see their take on that, right? Because they're, if not for the current social media paradigm, I don't know how many of these, how many of these conspiracies would have gone farther than some dude's backyard. But with the proliferation of like instantaneous, you know, all of a sudden everyone thinks YouTube is research, right? And so they're all like, I've done my own research. No, you watched 15 stupid videos on YouTube and now you're an expert on, you know, child trafficking rings and, you know, Luciferians. And suddenly everything is a conspiracy. But would you say that's a, a big, a big, a big component of this is the ability to proliferate this stuff way more easily than maybe in the past. Yeah, I think so. And and you can make it look really good, right? So people, right. it's just a lot more people today can have like high production value in a video or whatever they do. And I've shared this story a few times already on some other podcasts Greg and I've been on. But I was in uh, year after I graduated college, lived in Hungary for a year, doing actually like campus ministry missions work. And a friend of my roommates, another American, sent like this Xerox copy of stuff about Procter and Gamble and how oh, they were yeah. a Satanist company and like the satanic symbols and that the, yeah. yeah, all that stuff that he had been on, the president had been on Phil Donahue and none of it was true, right? But that was, you know, a piece of paper you got in the mail. So it still happened, but yeah, it's, I mean, you just, obviously you can reach millions and millions more people so much more easily and more professionally than just some random thing in the mail. Well, I got into this project because I have friends who believe this stuff. And so for me, it was personal. It raised lots of questions in my mind. I mean, originally, it's easy to dismiss it as something like just crazy talk. But when you start to dig into it, and because you have somebody you know and you love and care about into this stuff, you start to take it seriously. You realize that it's a lot more complex. It's a lot more difficult than just what it looks like on the surface. So I think this project, this book is meant to be a toolkit we can hand to people, especially people in the church. It's written uh, by Christians, for Christians, because we see this phenomenon in the church and we we care about the church. We want to do something about it. So we don't have discussed this issue a bunch with Christians, you know, and, and one of the things that struck me is, so let's, let's look at it from, from, a, from an ethical point of view. And that's what always sort of bugged me was if you look at all of this stuff from an ethical point of view, it seems as though this willingness to proliferate. I think what, and I know there are true believers. I know there are a lot of these fake, I, I would bet a lot of them know they're, know they're propagating lies. And so ethically, where does that concern come in? Like you are lending yourself to inciting panic and fear and all kinds of other stuff. And then oftentimes doing it in the name of church or God or Christ. That strikes me as an ethical issue, but maybe I, that's just me, we think. Certainly. I mean, we got to make a distinction between the people who are propagating this stuff and the people who are believing it. Like people, my friends aren't necessarily propagating it in the way that, say, Alex Jones is propagating it. But so there are people who actually really sincerely believe this and may spread that information. There are those who, who may not. I mean, who knows if Alex Jones actually believes this stuff, but... I, well, wasn't, his, wasn't one of his major defenses when he was being sued was that, listen, this is all an act. I don't believe me this shit. Well, and don't we find this to be somewhat true with some of the higher-ups in this, that we find that when, it, when the rubber meets the road, a lot of these people say, I, I actually never really believed any of this shit. I just, I just went along because it, it helped with ratings, it helped move some agenda forward, it helped 
I mean, do we do we look at it as it's almost like they think that by pushing these conspiracies, they are they are moving an agenda forward by almost by using bad media to get a good message, and this is in huge air quotes, a good message across to the Americans. Because we continually hear this, right? That like Giuliani didn't really believe that Trump won. There's multiple people that didn't believe that Trump won. There's multiple people who really didn't believe that, you know, all this conspiracy about if we just ignore the, the COVID pandemic, that it would just, it would just go away. They really didn't believe that. They just, but they propagated this conspiracy. So is it, is it, I don't even know what to say because I almost feel like we are stuck in this like flat earth conspiracy world where to, to call out the conspiracy is to say that you were never a true believer. And that's the easy, that's the easy out. And for, for flat earthers, that's it, right? If, if you ever call out flat earth conspiracy, you were, you were never a true believer. You never really believed it. Are we at, are we at that point with things like COVID, the, the 2020 election? Are, are we at that point where they, it's so easy to just say, well, if you're calling out these "Quote unquote conspiracies," you you never really were a true believer. I mean, is that true? Is that is that fair to say about these people? I mean, <laughs> it's hard for me not to, I mean, to be cynical. And so, one thing about doing the book was I and Greg talked about this a little bit is I had to try to set that aside and try to just take some of these things, just try to be as fair as I could, and not just dismiss it. You know, well, that's crazy. That's some weird conspiracy theory. No, I wasn't convinced that there are any of these conspiracy theories Q and all stuff are true. But I think, so. I, look, people make money, they get attention. And so from, from those that are propagating these things, and I don't know, human beings are weird, man. I mean, maybe they kind of deceive, deceive themselves into believing it for a while. And then when it's not in their interest, they, they find, you know, all of a sudden they don't. But yeah, it's that true believer thing. I think that's interesting because that's where, in many ways, belief in this stuff is like, it's like a religion, right? I mean, it's like, well, you're never really a believer. I mean, you hear people say that about Christians who leave the faith or who, you know, right. yeah. change change their theologies from whatever that person doesn't like. Right? Well, you were, and so I think, there, yeah, maybe so. But then the question is, well, then what's going on? And, and I think there's an ethical question, even for the people, and this is something that, that I think comes out in several places in the book, we all have an ethical responsibility related to our beliefs, right? So we, we, we want to be careful. So I wouldn't, you know, my, if my next, I have a next door neighbor who, a former one who believed in, in some of the conspiracy stuff. Um, we have some conversations. I put him in a very different category than, you know, Alex Jones, just since we've mentioned that, or some of these people that probably are just grifters, right? Using to make money or have influence or build a platform. But even that, my next door neighbor, where he's still responsible for what he believes, right? We have to try to think carefully. And we're not, we're not going to have to sit around like philosophers do with our PhDs and do it. You don't have to do that. But we're human beings. We've got intellectual capabilities. We can think through stuff and try to our best to seek the truth. And that's really the heart behind the book. I mean, because there have been conspiracies, right? I mean, conspiracies happen. So it's not like everything that's conspiracy is just false. I mean, I'd want to set a you know, big distinction between lizard people and you know, Watergate. <laughs> but, right, but still, right. right? Well, so. and, I, and I think your book does a really good job. I, I think you did a really good job of using, you know, giving each chapter, a different author for each chapter. As, you know, obviously we talked about you guys edited the book. But you have, yeah, they're all talking about conspiracy. I think they're all leaning towards the side that these conspiracies are potentially harmful. But you have you have very diverse 
responses to how to react to conspiracy theories and the way we should talk to people and to the point where someone's just like, you know, we, we need to show them love. We need to, you know, get to the, the point of view of understanding where they're coming from to almost as like these guys are nut jobs and that we just need to understand they're nut jobs. And I really appreciate that about the book that you, you didn't hold back and let, you know, you didn't say, okay, we're going to like narrow it down to, we're only going to talk to, only going to write it from this perspective. So I really appreciate that. But at the same time, it's like, and, and again, there's authors in here who bring up the idea that even the idea of Christianity or the resurrection or any of that, that's, that's a conspiracy, right? Because a conspiracy is a small group of people with not a lot of proof, basically stating facts. So the resurrection of Jesus, if you want to really get down and dirty, is a conspiracy. Is it a, is it a wrong conspiracy? Is it a bad conspiracy? That's, I think, really an interesting part of this book was there are conspiracies that turn out to be factual and true and helpful that helps us move forward. But then it seems like, and I don't want to say in the last 20, 30 years, because I think we have some pretty big issues even, even earlier than that, uh, where things have kind of gone amok and they've, they've, and we've kind of lost this idea that we want to look and we want to take a, we don't want to use the word scientific method, but we want to look at it and research it. And, and actually, we actually, we just talked to someone recently and said one of the things that, that we have problems with is that within today's modern media, there isn't a lot of fact checking or the ability for us to fact check. And I think there should be almost like a mandate that if you're going to talk about something, you should be able to cite all of your sources, right? I mean, your book, every chapter, every source is cited, right? In this book. But it seems like on the internet and YouTube and all that, we can get away from that. And then we, we, we lose, lose connection to truth. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or does that make sense at all? For sure. I think that's exactly what we're trying to do is allow the different voices, each, each author to, to, to give their own voice to, to their um, perspective and speak from their own area of expertise. And we didn't, I mean, you mentioned the definition of a conspiracy theory. There's, there's different definitions in the book that for some people that can be confusing and disturbing, but um, we kind of let that go. There's one chapter, I think it's chapter 10, Christian Miller's chapter. He says, Christianity, all Christians are conspiracy theorists because you believe in the Trinity and you also believe in the devil and his minions and stuff like that. So there's, that's, that's using one definition of conspiracy theory. And then there's others, others as well. And I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'm that comfortable with that definition personally, but I mean, conspiracy, when, when we use that word conspiracy theory, we're, we're, we're almost, we're making a judgment call up, almost, you know, built into that. There's a connotation when you use that term. And it's in, to cite or to paraphrase Brian Keeley's definition, which is widely used in the literature, this is a, an explanation of some kind of event perpetrated by a small group of people acting in secret. And I would, I would add to that with some nefarious intent. So there's some evil, malicious intent behind it. That's what I would add as a definition. But we decide not to get into that. We just let it let it go and, and see how it, how it came out. I thought I thought the chapters were great in that way. Yeah, and that's and that's cool that those disparate points of view then get to come in and we go, okay, we're not going to silence that because I don't necessarily agree. I don't love the definition. Um, I'll I, I I'll admit I struggle with that definition without the caveat you just added, which is the with some nefarious intent. I don't. Because pretty much any time we've talked about conspiracies, 
in the last 1500, you know, it's, it is, it, it is things like Watergate. You know, there are people trying to cover up, trying to hide things, trying to manipulate events behind the scene for their own purposes or for nefarious reasons. So one thing I was going to say was that obviously not, obviously not all conspiracies are false. There are actual, that, the one of the things, one of the dangers of, of, of the proliferation of so many of these different conspiracies is that it does sort of take away attention from the, you know, the fact that there are actual conspiracies happening. You know, it's kind of like, okay, well, now, now everyone, everything just gets lumped into the same category and everyone's a nut job. Meanwhile, there are things happening probably behind the scenes by people who are actually, you know, in a position to do things and move agendas forward. Meanwhile, we're distracted by lizard people, you know, so either one of you, what's, what's your, what are we taking away? Is that, was that one of the issues here is that we are actually sort of detracting from actual issues by throwing all kinds of crazy stuff into the same category of conspiracy theory? Yeah, I think there's something to that. Like, I just think the way we normally talk, like you, like you just said, Ned, when we, when we think of conspiracies or conspiracy theories, we think of bad stuff, right? Obviously, we could have just said everyone who says something went down in Watergate. Well, you're all just you're all just crazy. Like you just you know you're just trying to throw Nixon on the bus. You're just trying to you know. And it turns out, Dad Gummit, it was true. There was stuff you know. It's not fake moon landing conspiracy. It's you know actual stuff happening. And we could debate the the validity of the moon landing, but that's that's another topic. But yeah, good. Yeah, well, I think this is a reason, part of the reason I think Greg can add in too that we wanted to do this book is that what you know, there's people get obsessed with this stuff. Christians get obsessed with this stuff where there becomes like the main focus of their life, like evangelizing their conspiracy theory. You need yeah. to see this. You need to read this. And and it, it reminds me of you know I, went to, I was in undergrad in the 80s and 90s during the first Gulf War and. I, you know, a pl- just a, a flood of like end times Armageddon books, right? And oh, so, yeah. you know, Chris, you know, for the 20th century and even still people obsessed with end time stuff and this stuff. And I'm just thinking for us, it's like we need to, yeah, those are issues here to think about. But if this is what your whole life and your thoughts and emotions are just too much of it are getting sucked into this void, then you're not thinking about the kingdom of God or loving your neighbor or working out that bad relationship with the person at church, you know, whatever it is, trying to help the poor in your community. Or if I'm trying to share, you know, I'm trying to share my faith or something with my next door neighbor. And I also, you know, one day I'm telling them about lizard people. The next day I'm telling them Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> well, there's going to be a credibility, you know, there's a credibility issue. There, and that's, and, and in a day when there's so, I mean, in our sort of, I mean, I'm in Kentucky. So in some ways it's, it's like a, it's still the Bible belt. But it's not. But it's just—it's a veneer. I mean, our church has done some research. Like the vast majority of people in our county don't go to church. I want to say like eighty to eighty-five percent don't go to church, which I was shocked when I heard that because there are churches everywhere. But, but yeah, I think that's our concern: is that these these conspiracy theories can just take your mental, emotional, and even spiritual energy uh, away from things that matter. And yeah, like you said. I would agree. There's stuff going on in the world that you should be paying attention to, right? Things that we could, that people are getting away with or things that we, you know, we can help make our country or our city or our neighborhood better. And we're not doing that. We're just, you know, watching a, a deep video dive about QAnon on yeah. YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> How much traction though, and I don't want to, I don't want to necessarily turn this political, but it seems like from my vantage point that some of this got turned up to 11 um, under the presidency of an unnamed person who we all know. Anyway, but, but it's because once, once somebody sitting, and it, it could have been anybody, doesn't matter, it didn't have to be him, but it was him. 
But as soon as somebody in that position begins to give any kind of validity or credibility um, and starts to maybe start, I mean, starts, you know, using sort of QAnon verbiage from the podium of the White House, all of a sudden they're like, oh man, we got a guy in there who knows what's going on. He's, he's been awakened to. So did you find or do you find that that sort of amped everything up once people in actual positions of influence and power started parroting some of these party lines? Definitely. The, the book was actually in progress before January 6th. But, wow, okay. but when January 6th occurred, interest in this project took off. I think, and just, of course, people just were just, people, people who didn't notice it before noticed the relevance of this topic because Jan, you, you can't separate January 6th from QAnon. I mean, that's a big part of what happened. So I think people are now paying attention. But, but conspiracy theories have been around for decades, centuries, even if you look at some of the literature. I mean, the start of our country had to do with certain conspiracy theories. Very interesting stuff to go into. Not that we do that in the book. But I think that it's always been around. And as we mentioned earlier, during the 80s and 90s, it was a thing in the church. It has been, it's no different today. So, Well, and you bring up 80s and 90s, and one of the biggest conspiracy theories that I think we, I think we all went through was the satanic panic. I mean, I, I personally, you know, destroyed albums, cassettes. I have very, unfortunately, I have a very vivid memory of me in my backyard with a BB gun shooting cassettes and albums of these quote unquote satanic bands. Uh, now of which I wish I had every single one of those vinyls back. But that was, I think for me, in the moment, you know, and you, 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 you're in that moment, right? And you, and you're brought, you're brought in with it, with all the fervor and, and the acknowledgement that you're going to be more on fire for God if you can do this. And then that, that, that moment wanes, right? And then you realize, you start to realize that this is kind of stupid, that this this can't be because your parents also listened to the quote unquote rock and roll of the time and they and they survived and they're okay because they're the ones taking you to church they're the ones that seem well, we're we worshiping the devil in secret i mean for 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 me that was the beginning of this idea that the the church can manipulate us into believing conspiracy and i don't think conspiracy theory was the term at that time but they could definitely manipulate us into believing something that wasn't true, but that helped move their vision of God, heaven, eternity. And, and, and do you see that as like one of the biggest, and again, we can talk about conspiracy theories way back to the founding of this country, probably even older, but do you see that as like one of the biggest like awakenings of conspiracy theories? Because I, I, I can't remember a time during that era where it, CNN, or CNN didn't exist, but the different news channels talking about Satanism and how they were taking our children and there was these Satan worshiping idols and, and groups and all that, that you got to the point where people were afraid to even like walk out of their house because they were afraid they're going to be kidnapped by Satanists. Yeah. Wasn't there like, I mean, Geraldo Rivera, this was back in those days was like, he did, I mean, it was in the media and there was a, uh, a lot, of, a lot more about a lot of stuff about the occult, and yeah, I mean, I think you know, a friend of mine, he doesn't do this anymore, but he he spent about twenty five or thirty years 
basically on on Capitol Hill lobbying and raising money and for causes and he, and he did and he learned and he was told later you know you want you want money you want to get support make people afraid well what's what else I mean how, what could you be more afraid of than Satan or that you know when you talked about records I might be older than you I don't know but I remember someone told me that Kiss was like meant Knights in Satan's service right that band the seventies rock band. ACDs, yeah, <laughs> all that stuff, yeah. Antichrist, um, Devil's Child, um, no, and everyone was backward masking. Remember that? Yeah, um, that was it. Yeah, the back masking thing. Yeah, yeah. So you, if you, you had to get you had to get the vinyl though, because you could not get the benefit of satanic <laughs> messages on a cassette tape. That's right. Spin the record backwards and hear worship devil, and we're like, oh, look at that! Led Zeppelin's trying to kill us. I actually went to so in. I think we're probably about the same age. I'm a baby a little older than y'all. I'm, I'm in my, John and I are both in our fifties. So I don't know where you land on that. So you don't have to tell us. That's fine. But. I'm 54. I'm proud. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so we're, we're John's 53. Um, so we're all about the same age. I mean, but the uh, so in the in the eighties, like you mentioned, the all the end time stuff was crazy, right? I mean, I I was I was I was raised on Hal Lindsey's late great late great Planet, Planet Earth, and I mean, way before Left Behind ever came out, it was Hal Lindsey and his ilk. Um, all the super chick tracks, you know. But then it, it it veered, as it tends to do, and it veered into the occult stuff, and it veered into how prevalent it was inside of popular culture. So I, we, I get dragged to these evangelist meetings, you know. Somebody would have a tent meeting somewhere, and they'd be talking about, you know, all the, the evil rock and roll music. And they, that, that topic of backward masking came out. You know, all the stories of, you know, you know, Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin living in Aleister Crowley's house and being into the occult and all this stuff and basically inviting a demon into your life every time you listen to uh, Stairway to Heaven, which is a bummer because I love that song. But one figure that is in your is in one of the chapters of the book that John and I both immediately went, oh, I forgot about that dude, was Mike Bornke. And he was he was maybe the first, if, if not the first, certainly the most popular Christian comedian. And he was a big deal for quite a while. There are people listening to the podcast who would be like, Mike, who? But um, but Mike built his career, his entire career, on a story about him having somehow escaped from a satanic coven. What is y'all on? I know Christianity, I think it was Christianity Today, a, a major Christian publication outed him as being... Um, it was Cornerstone. All of that. Was it, was it, who was it? Cornerstone. Cornerstone? Yeah. What's that? It was, oh, okay. a Christian, it was a Christian magazine. Oh, okay. My bad. I knew it was a, I knew it was a fairly big one, but... What does something like that then do to, <laughs> I mean, do to us, to our psyche? Was he just, do you think he was just kind of using the, whatever, the zeitgeist of the day? Oh man, Satanism's a big deal. People are talking about this and kind of moved in on it or was there something more nefarious at work? Yeah, I mean, I had remembered and heard of him, but I, that's, a, you know, I learned that chapter, I learned a lot because I didn't know all those details. I mean, I yeah. kind of knew who he was, you know, kind of just surface level story. But, I mean, you'd have to be pretty, there have to be some serious kind of issues if you believed all the, I mean, if you believed his own story, right? I mean, it's just, it just seems easier for me. And of course, I don't know him and I'm not, but it, my initial thought is just somebody who, well, I don't know, you know, you get attention and money, maybe then you're tempted to fudge it and then you do it some more and then you get all this attention and money. So, you know, I can see it going either way, but it, it just, it's weird to me to think of somebody that just makes that up. <laughs> yeah. Well, we and then starts to believe it. Or, yeah. Well, and there was a, a, a there was a contemporary Christian singer at the time. I don't know if you've ever heard of Carmen. Remember Carmen? 
Um, he was real popular in the 80s. And he, I mean, he did a whole song that was sort of based off the same stuff about going into a witch's cup, you know, going into a witch's house and having to exercise demons and stuff. So it was part of that. And I was raised in a fairly charismatic style church. So all that woo woo demon stuff was, that was, that was, that was what we did. You know what I mean? Um, if we weren't speaking in tongues. We were praying about speaking in tongues. So for them to, for them to talk about demonic oppression or stuff like that, it was like, oh yeah, well, hey, that's just, that's just normal. Um, now I kind of look at it and go, really? But, um, but my wife and I actually met at a Mike Warnke concert. So that's why it kind of resonated. And I told the story before we started that I, I would tell on myself that I actually shoplifted a Mike Warnke <laughs> cassette from a Christian bookstore. So I think that's the limitations has run out. I cannot be prosecuted. So y'all, y'all come at me if you need to. I'll I, give you your 10 bucks. Why, what possessed me? I don't know. I was broke. Well, and then, because uh, Nat and I were talking about this. So Mike Warnke came to Eureka, California twice. So Nat went the first time. I actually went the second time and I, actually, I, I took a date. So it's weird that we both took dates or you met. I, and I took a date. Uh, my, my date didn't work out. So <laughs> she thought he was stupid. I married mine. She was like, if this is as bad as it gets, we're in good shape. Yeah. She thought Mike Warnke was stupid. And, uh, and we, and at the time I thought he was like, I thought he was the best thing ever because, you know, anyone who talks about, you know, getting shot in the ass with an arrow in Vietnam. Because he was handing because he was handing out candy bars. That's funny. Uh, it's funny, but the sadly, you know, like we were talking about, the conspiracy theory was that you know he was an ex Satanist that he somehow escaped the coven of Satanism, which I now have. I actually have friends who go to or, and are members of the Church of Satan, and for the, to understand what that means compared to what in the eighties and early nineties what they said about Satanism. It's, it's night and day, first of all. And, but we don't want to, I don't want to get into that because that's not part of the conspiracy theory. But the, the idea that this conspiracy theory would take hold so well within the Western evangelical church, I think is, is the most important part of this because it almost feels like there's an indoctrination within that, that part of the church, specifically Western evangelical fundamentalist church that for some reason is somehow educated or brought up to be open to these ideas of conspiracies because they, is it, and either one can answer this question, is it because of this idea that they're always being persecuted and they're always looking for ways to show, to show the persecution of the church? Is that part of it? Would you, would either one of you agree with that? Or do you, do you have some idea of if that's part of it? I think there are several factors. This is a common question that we get, and several of the chapters address it. But I think one of them is the the perpetuation of, you know, the us versus them culture war rhetoric in the church. So in the evangelical church, which I'm still a part of, you often hear it's about a culture war. We're fighting a culture war. It's us versus them. And that cultivates a certain distrust of the other side. It becomes these other people who we don't trust. And in fact, it gets to the point where we think the worst of them. And then when they get into power, now we're afraid. And we're thinking, what could they be doing? What things could they be up to? Especially, you hear about these conspiracy theories these days that they're worshiping the devil and there's sex trafficking and all this stuff going on. 
So, so this is all, I think, a part of it, but that comes from, I think, this us versus them culture war rhetoric, which personally I don't think is very healthy in the church. No, I agree. Uh, l- let me ask you a question then, uh, since, we, since this does sort of pivot around QAnon, let's talk about QAnon for a second then. So what, one question I've always sort of wondered about QAnon, because I, to be honest with you, I haven't delved too deeply in it because I, I don't really want to. I hadn't really, you know, but I am curious, is, is QAnon sort of one of these sort of groups, is it, is it an actual group or is it a, a bunch of loosely affiliated people who kind of cite the same kind of stuff or is there any kind of organization or structure to it? Mike, maybe you can help out with this, but QAnon, I understand, is is one or two people posting anonymously. Uh, and it's, it's been tracked, and the, and the chapter in here that did a great job on that was the religious rhetoric of QAnon. I highly rec- recommend that one. And he's, there's a place, I guess, a website you can go to that actually catalogs every post that's attributed to QAnon. So you can see who this person and who knows who he is, he, she, whoever this person is. But it has this mystique. It has this draw. People are drawn. Like there's lots of people out there on the internet who post just random things, nonsense. Um, But for whatever reason, QAnon just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And people latched on to it. Unexplained. I I don't have a good explanation. Yeah. It's definitely like a, you know, it's, I mean, it's right wing, like politically. And so, you know, it's, as we mentioned Trump already, he's kind of part of the story. I think it's the best way to think about it. You know, one of the chapters is like a loosely affiliated network. But now because it's grown so much and so many people are part of, you know, like what Q says or believe Q or part of QAnon that, I mean, you can find things that are contradictory that are part of QAnon, right? So it's sort of just this... Yeah, it's kind of a messy. So it's, I think it's, I think it's, there's like a network, but it's not like this some structured organization or something, you know, like that. It's more just this sort of, to me, it's something that's kind of spread like this sort of populist conspiracy <laughs> theory network coupled with, you know, sort of right wing politics where it's, it's the Democrats, the entertainment and news media. They're all the ones that are the, you know, running the, sex child sex trafficking network and there's this deep state deep state and then trump is gonna you know this is more the story i guess trump's gonna was supposed to defeat it and someday everybody will see that q was right and they'll all be put in jail and then there'll be like this utopia i guess is i mean it's hard i don't mean to be disrespectful but it just like no but it's nutty i mean yeah some of it really is for sure it gets to a point though doesn't it not get to a point where and i've noticed this with so I, I got, John knows this. Um, I, I really, I dove deep into the flat earth stuff for a while just because it's, it fascinates me. Because the first time I heard about it, I was, I was convinced it was a joke. I thought the flat earth society was, I thought it was a, I thought it was satire, you know? And I'm like, oh, this is really funny. And I'm like, holy crap, no, no. I mean, they're like, and it, and it, it gets to a place where if you, if, and I've listened to a ton and I've watched a ton of YouTube videos of people who, we had a guy on the podcast a while back who actually has a YouTube channel where he just devoted to debunking flat earth conspiracies, right? Um, but you get to a place where you can't, and this maybe gets some to, some to the point of your book, where you can't argue with people who distrust everything because it doesn't matter what you show them. It, it, it's all fake. It's all been contrived. It's all, there's, so does your book offer any suggestions for how do I deal with somebody who has just gone beyond the point of reason where they literally think 
everything that falls outside of their belief system is a lot. And therefore, I mean, they don't, they, they just don't, they don't adhere to the normal rules of like evidence and conspiracy. Like you can go, hey, well, here's a picture I have. And they go, ah, that's fake. You can fake anything. How do you, how do you do that? I don't think this book is intended for that audience. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, say, say, but, Maybe for someone like me, though, who knows someone like right. that. That's, that's who this book is intended for. And I don't think this, that there's something in this book that that person can use to convince that other person to right. change their no, mind heard, about yeah. it. But several of the chapters, mine included, I think do have this theme, and it was mentioned earlier. And that's, as Christians, we're called to love our neighbors. We're, we're called to love our enemies. We're called to love our conspiracy theorist friends. And I think to that to, to that end, I think that one, advi- one piece of advice that I do hope comes out in this book is that instead of trying to argue with people like this, is that just we just need to love them. And I, and I, I see in the church, this is part of my journey through this, is that a lot of people on the other side, the non-conspiracy theorists, do not care. They're dismissive. They, they may even be angry or, or hate the conspiracy theorists in the church. And, and my thought is that we should, we should listen. We should, and this comes out in the first chapter. We should listen carefully. When you have somebody you know in the church or a friend who has this, listen carefully, take it seriously. And then don't just jump in to criticize, but praise that person for, for their obvious concern for the country or whatever it is that got them into this, right? Because they, I'll tell you from people I've talked to, they don't get a lot of that. That's why they're in their, their echo chambers. That's how they go off into the, the internet and find people who agree with them because they don't get a lot of that in society. So if you're the person that cares for that person, shows some concern, and takes their view seriously, that's, I think, the first step to breaking through, if it's possible. And I think my advice, and I, I got this from a friend, is that this was not even a conspiracy. This is just talking with people you disagree with. When you enter into a debate or an argument or a conversation with somebody who's holds a position very strongly. Don't go in there trying to convince them they're wrong. Have instead as your goal to try to convince them that you care about them. And that takes, it takes a burden off of your shoulder and it disarms them as well. And I think that goes a long way in loving your neighbor. I, I, I agree with you like 95%. My, my only caveat is and I, I think you would probably agree because agree with this because I, I think you're um, a pretty smart person. That's wait a second. You agree with me because <laughs> you're smart. That's good. <laughs> the, the the only the only caveat I would add is if these people are using their conspiracy to hurt either a marginalized group or be openly hostile towards a group. That's where I think we need to step in and say, not only are you, again, you can do this from a place of love. You can say, Hey, not only are you, you're not getting your point across. You're, you're, you're legitimately hurting your fellow human beings. You're the, the Bible that you read, the Bible that you supposedly agree with says that everyone is in the image of, is, has, is in the image of God and you are, you are violently throwing this hate towards a group of people who your own Bible says is an image of God. And I think that's, I think that's a point where you can, you can be a little bit more outspoken than just say, Hey, I understand that we, that we come from different points of view and let's, let's sit down and let's, let's work on where we can come to an agreement. 
I have an issue with anyone who is using, uh, say, like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, and that's it's an easy example, right, of someone who is using her power to specifically hurt people. Not she's not she's she has gone beyond this idea of an agenda. Now she's just hurting groups of people that she doesn't like. That would be my only caveat. Is like if you're if you're actively trying to hurt a marginalized group of people, I'm going to call you out, and I'm not going to feel bad about it. Oh, and I'm not yet. As you as you said, I don't disagree with you. I think in the first chapter, I didn't fill in the complete story of the first chapter. You praise, but then you also probe. That was the point of the contributors there: is that you press in. So, and you might press in very strongly. There might be a time for that, right? So I think that's definitely called for. But again, we're called to love our enemies just as, as we are to, to call our neighbors, uh, love our neighbors. So so I, I agree with you. I, I do. Um, so the question is that what do we mean by how strongly we stand? Now, somebody who's a public figure like that, I don't know that person. I'm never going to encounter that person, right? But if it's somebody who is my neighbor, somebody down the road, somebody at church in the pew, it's a little different, I think. Yeah, and that's always seems to be the case. That I mean, there's there's all kinds of. I my own personal philosophy is, you know, public figures are fair game. You know, you 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 entered into that sphere. I think most people knowing that you will uh, you'll you'll be subject to some criticism. I'm fine with that. It is harder though. You know, John and I have had this experience in our own family. You know, when it's when it's a family member, you know, and and I don't think we have any family members who are like full-on conspiracy theories. We had some we had some pretty hardcore discussions about COVID. And there was a lot of conspiracy around that and is a lot of conspiracy around that. The vaccination has caused a great deal of upheaval and there's been lots of arguments in my own family, even with one of my own kids, you know. So because, you know, they're just convinced that that thing was you know, rushed to market and there were nefarious, you know, motives behind it. So I take your advice very seriously when you're talking about people with whom you actually have relationship and you got to do your best to preserve that if you can. And if that means, you know, treading lightly. Um, I tried, you know, for some of these folks, I'm like, we just won't talk about this stuff. How about we just don't talk about this? Let's talk about anything, but let's talk about baseball. No, no, no conspiracy theories there. Sure, steroids. Damn it, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> but, you know, you do get to a point, I think, where you, you begin to say, well, I have to prioritize these relationships over these things. But, it's a, it's a tough line to draw sometime when when somebody goes around the bend and suddenly, like you mentioned earlier, it is so all-encompassing. Like everything about them seems to be uh, their need to evangelize this conspiracy theory, get everyone to wake up and realize that their kids are being trafficked in you know, underground pizza parlors or something. It's crazy. How, let me ask you this. This probably came out um, or was at least being published prior to uh, Sound of Freedom, the movie coming out. Do you see a connection there with what's going on with that and all these other conspiracies around trafficking and human trafficking? Is there, is there, a, or am I just seeing something that's not there? Yeah, maybe. Can I just say one more thing about what we were just talking about first? Because it just, sure. I can't help myself. Um, I mean, I think one thing that helps me in these, in those things is, you know, when they talk about Jesus being full of grace and truth, because I think, I think you have to, there's, you got to go case by case. So I might, so like Greg's talking a close or a family member, a close friend, I might deal with them differently. Um, yeah, really it's just, yeah, sometimes you need more grace, sometimes more truth. And we just have to sort of lean into, you know, the relationship, wisdom from people, the Holy Spirit's guidance. But I'm, I'm with John, like when somebody, I mean, there's a chapter in our book about how, um, you know, so 
so LGBTQ people from that community have been, you know, subject of conspiracy theories and other marginalized groups, or it could be, you know, people come, you know, the people coming across the border to kill your children and inject fentanyl into their veins or, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, that's where it's like the, the gracious thing is like a hardcore truth. And that's a lie. You know, that they are, that person has the same value as you. So I just wanted to say that because I think that's, I think that's a key point. We're trying to sort of try to undermine the polarization some, but some things you have to be polarized about, right? I mean, that's the, it's just the nature of right and wrong. Yeah. And well, Nat brings up, uh, you know, that within our own family, we've had issues. And so for me, and, and I, I actually had this conversation with my wife the other day because we were, I don't remember who we were listening to and they were talking about, um, they were talking about the positive of the positives of COVID which was they gave them this long period of time where they didn't have to go to the office and they got this almost like this break where well, I didn't get that. You know, I work in what's considered um, uh, what, what, what were they called? Uh, businesses that had to stay open regardless of anything. Uh, I'm, I'm missing, I'm, I'm completely blanking on the word. Essential, essential businesses. So yeah. This idea that all these people were talking about this ability to kind of break away from reality even. And it kind of gave them this chance to like see, see the world, their government, their country in a different, a different point of view. But there were people like me who were, who were considered essential workers who didn't really have that. And so, and we talked about a little bit of this before we hit record again, is that we went from zero or from heroes because at the beginning it was like, I can't believe you guys are still open. I can't believe you're allowing us to get all the merchandise we need, the bare essentials to live, to as soon as any mask mandates were put into place. And we, we literally had a woman who came in and said, I understand the mask mandate is happening on such and such day. I will be here on that day and I will be a problem for you. So we all knew it was coming. And so that day happened and true to her word, she came in, she was a problem and she was arrested. And of course, that actually was the first time that I was involved in any kind of viral video, right? Where I'm on, and I'm just standing back, I'm letting my boss take care of the situation, but I'm in the video of her being taken out and arrested. But when it comes to conspiracy theories, again, Coming from the top down, we had this idea that masks aren't going to work. It's never going to work. If you're strong and you believe in God and God's going to protect you, you don't need masks. And then later it was you don't need vaccines. And later it was you don't need boosters. I know it's talked a little bit of in, in the book because I know COVID was a, a definitely a big part of the conspiracy, even with even within QAnon. But going back to talking about Having conversations with family, specifically, I, I have, I have, I have very little problem. You know, if I have to have a conversation with a, a uh, an acquaintance or someone I don't know that well, and we're not going to agree, I can, I can end that discussion pretty quick and just move on, right? I'm not going to, I'm not going to put in a lot of, of my time, to, quote unquote, fix our relationship if it's someone I don't know that well. But when it comes to family. These are people that you're going to have Christmas dinner with, Thanksgiving dinner with. You're going to have family events with. What are what are the takeaways out of this book on how to have conversations with these people and hope that we can 
I hate, I hate the, t- I hate the saying, but at the same time, I think it's important is to agree to disagree, right? I mean, there's a point where we have to agree to disagree. The caveat on that, just like in, on some other things, I won't agree to disagree on something where it harms a marginalized people. But I can agree to disagree where you and I don't agree that masks are important on a day to day basis, that you and I both need to get the vaccine. Does the book even, does the book address this? Just this idea of how do we have these conversations with families and loved ones, sometimes within our, with our own, within our own dwelling, right? Yeah, I think there are several chapters that do address uh, communicating with people you care about, communicating about these tough issues. And I think there are a number of ways to answer that question. One is to first reflect on, you know, what you value most of all. Um, and then you say, you know, you're going to have to like speak the truth or you can't, you can't agree to disagree about this particular issue, but can you agree to have Christmas dinner or Thanksgiving dinner with this person anymore? And it seems like, I don't know. I mean, I guess like Mike said, it's probably a case by case basis, but what do you value most of all that, that other person may not be able to handle you, but are you, are you able to, you know, come over next time and handle them? I mean, if you tell them, if you're, like I said before, if you're, if you take it as your primary goal to let them know that you care about them, and you might have to say, you know what, my friend, we're not going to agree on this one. We've had this conversation five years in a row, <laughs> you know, <laughs> agree at the end of the night. But if you want to talk about it again, without getting upset, we can do that. Okay. Now, are you there in your friendship or your relationship? I don't know. But you know, that's just where my thoughts go with that. Well, my biggest concern when, when it, through COVID, when it was like, I mean, the, we live in a small community and the amount, of, the amount of people infected and the deaths were, were still pretty shocking. I can't imagine living in any kind of big city where the deaths were in the thousands, sometimes daily. But my biggest concern when it came to my family and the people who I disagreed with is some of them are health compromised. And knowing that I was, quote unquote, an essential worker and the amount of people that I saw on a daily basis, the, the idea that if I brought COVID into my family and one of my, one of my family members who were health compromised got sick and died. And then I would have to, and because they didn't believe it, right? They don't believe this. So they're like, come in, don't wear a mask. I don't care. I don't know if I'd ever be able to forgive myself. But at the same time, they're thinking it's all not real. So it's like, it's really, it was really hard to put the two together and come up with a compromise that I felt where I was being safe and I was being safe for them. Um, because yeah, I, I, I love my family. I don't, I want to see them as often as I can. But at the same time, if I was the reason any of my family got sick and, you know, God forbid died, I don't know. I don't know what I would do. So that was, that was really, really tough. And I know, and, and I'm not the only one in this country who has dealt with this. I, there, there are stories after stories after stories of people who had to deal with this, right? And again, it goes back to a president who put out this idea that there, there's not a big deal. When, when, when this president got COVID, I thought, okay, here's a moment where I think he might actually be able to unify for a moment. And instead he came out and said, see, I got it. It wasn't that bad. I wasn't even that sick. Of course, he got the best medical attention of any person in this country ever, right? He wasn't going to die from it. They weren't going to allow that to happen. 
But it could have been a moment where he said, okay, hey, this is serious. You know, through all the precautions that we do to keep our government safe, I still got it. And instead, he, he doubled down and said, see, it's not that big a deal. I didn't even get that sick. And I think that really is part of the problem when it comes to these conspiracies is some of them double down and don't, don't know when to say, Hey, okay, let's, let's have a communication. Let's have an open dialogue about what we're talking about. I think that would have been a good, the perfect point where some open dialogue could have happened about COVID and masks and, and vaccines. And he could have moved the country towards uh, a better understanding of who needs to be vaccinated, who needs to wear masks. But. Again, it's just, it's, it, it falls into this idea of conspiracies and, and, uh, the conspiracy theories where he holds on, it, it, be it, be it him or someone like Greg Locke or some, you know, anybody, right? They are going to double down. They're going to triple down. They're going to hold on to these conspiracies to the point where, um, they are harming themselves. They're harming their community and they're harming the, the larger community. Um, so I don't want to keep you guys too long, but if there's any like, you know, any last words you'd like to say about what you hope the book will do um, moving forward, like you said, it's not a, it's not a book for people who are like hunkered down in their conspiracy theories, but it's a book more for people like us who like we we want to know how to better communicate with people within our family, within our friends, within our communities who do hold on to these conspiracies. What are your, what are some last thoughts you have on how we can use this book to better understand our neighbor? I guess is um, a, a good way to end it. Yeah. I think for, for me, what jumps to mind, at least tonight is the, it goes back to before when we talked, why are we, why are evangelicals in particular seem to seem to be more susceptible to this? And I just think, look, there's a, there's an anti intellectualism in America generally, and there's some good and bad about that. But definitely in the church, and there is in the evangelical church, where there's a yeah, there's just a like people don't really think about Jesus as Dallas Willard said, being the smartest man who ever lived, smartest person who ever lived. Like Jesus was really smart, right? I mean, he was human, and I guess my my, but he was also God. But when you like look at the way he argued, the things it was obviously he meditated on big chunks of the Old Testament, had memorized it, or you know just his Bible. But I'm, the point of all this I'm getting to is that I think those of us that are the people that read this book, we'd like them to see the intellectual part of life as a part of their spiritual lives. Right? You think about Romans 12 and your mind being renewed. It's not all intellectual for sure. The, the emotions matter. Our hearts matter. Passions matter. But growing in knowledge just of God, of reality, right? That's, that's, that's one way to grow spiritually. So I think we can model that by the people we interact with. Yeah. As we listen, try to engage them that we care about truth. And you may not win an argument, but at least you've, you know, you've exemplified something of who Jesus was and is and who he wants us to be somebody who thinks carefully. And reasons well with others. And that doesn't mean you've got to be like Greg and I and get a PhD, but it just means, yeah, you're just just be thoughtful. You know, you don't need a degree. I mean, there are plenty. Obviously, that's obvious. But but I think that's what jumps to mind for me is that the, this mental or intellectual part of life. It's an important part of our spiritual lives. Uh, it's not the only part, but if we just sort of don't worry about it at all, or kind of let our fears control us, or it could be our anger, our pride, whatever it is, and the case may be. Um, that's something I think that, that we would see value that people could see. You know, I've learned something and it, it helped me understand myself, my neighbor better, 
and it gave me ways to love my neighbor better. Um, whether it's taking a tough stand, protecting my marginalized neighbor, or having that fifth conversation with my brother-in-law about this stuff and just trying to listen and be patient. Yeah, this is a this is a book of scholars. And so they're coming at it from their different perspectives. But I think some of them, some of the chapters speak more to the heart than others. And we even have a chapter on parenting. So I think there's a lot in here for, for anybody who's come into contact with people who believe conspiracy theories, or if they're on the fence, I mean, if they're on the fence and they're really struggling with it, I think this would be a helpful resource. I mean, it's been a helpful resource for me as co-editor to read all these chapters. And it's just part of, been part of my journey to learn, to learn through this book and to apply it to my own relationships. So I hope it's that for others as well. And, you know, to, to end the conversation, I guess, is just to remind people this, that you guys are the editors and there, there are multiple, I mean, there are, you, well, you both write a chapter in the book, but there's what, 24 chapters, I think. So that's, 22 other authors other than yourselves who bring some really, really good insight into uh, the idea of conspiracies, conspiracy theories. You know, they're not all of, I mean, I get you know, the title, QAnon, Chaos and the Cross. They're not all specifically potentially about QAnon, but they're definitely about conspiracies and the way they can kind of take hold specifically within the evangelical, evangelical church. And uh, so I really appreciate Anybody who can put a book together with that many authors, uh, I've, I've, I've written a chapter for a book. I think it had like 12 authors and I'm sure that was difficult for our editor. And you guys have done a great job putting together a book with that many authors. And, um, again, great voices too. I, I appreciated every single chapter of the book. Um, I felt like they all had something to say that was important and meaningful. So I would suggest to anybody listening to the podcast that they go out and buy the book. Uh, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Um, we'll obviously link to all that in the show notes. We'll link to everything that will connect them to you guys and the book in our show notes. And again, I just want to uh, thank you guys both for taking the time to have a conversation with us. I know that Nat has kind of disappeared uh, through some technical glitches, but uh, I know that he appreciates it as well. Um, we don't... Every conversation we have on this podcast is meaningful. And there hasn't been a time where at the end we're not like... I am. I'm so glad we had this conversation. It's a conversation that's important to have. And this is, again, just another one like that. And I'm so appreciative and um, thankful that you guys were willing to come on. So thank you very much for that. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Yeah, we appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice. If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch, where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.